Welcome to Shield of the Republic, a podcast sponsored by the Bulwark and the Miller Center of Public Affairs at the University of Virginia and dedicated to the proposition articulated by Walter Lippmann during World War II that a strong and balanced foreign policy is the indispensable shield of our democratic republic. I'm Eric Edelman, counselor at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a Bulwark contributor, and a non-resident fellow at the Miller Center. My co-host is Elliot Cohen the Robert E. Osgood Professor of Strategy at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies and the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Welcome, Elliot. Well, Eric, it's good to be with you. So this week, it's just you and me, mano a mano. It's just the two of us. So lots going on in the world. We should talk about uh, Ukraine, of course, because so much is going on with Ukraine. But we should talk about China uh, as well, because we've had a a major incident. We have a looming balloon gap uh, growing between the United States and the People's Republic of China. So should we talk about what in the world Chinese PLA leaders were thinking to launch this thing? Why don't we start with that? We can start with that. And then I'd like to talk about Iran, too, if only because so few people are talking about Iran, despite the fact that the protests continue and seems to me the uh, administration's Iran policy is either non-existent or in some disarray. So let's start with, you know, ballooning for fun and profit. So, uh, you know, here are a couple of things that struck me about it. But by the way, I'd also like us to talk a bit about Turkey, since that's a country you know really well, uh, having served as ambassador there. So back to the balloon, uh, there are a couple of things that strike me about it. One the Pentagon just admitted that we hadn't detected some of the previous balloon incursions, which is quite troubling, actually. I mean, these these are not like little balloons. They're really big balloons with big payloads. Secondly, uh, you know, the, I think the question one has to ask is, you know, is this just a question of bureaucracy does its thing? You know, that part of the PLA that's in charge of balloon reconnaissance does balloon reconnaissance no matter what. And maybe even if they already have satellites and spies who can pick up the same information. Or is this, you know, wolf warrior diplomacy? We're going to show you. Because the Chinese have sent these kinds of balloons over other countries. Uh, we're not the only ones. And I wonder, you know, is this a psychological game? What do you think? Well, first, uh, I want to stipulate, as lawyers would say, that uh, unlike a lot of people who are opining on this subject, I am not a balloon expert. I'm not a lighter-than-air system expert. And one of the things that has struck me about the response uh, over the last several days to this uh, on all sides is that a lot of people are, you know, issuing opinions and obiter dicta about this. And there's still so much, I think, we don't know. There have been reports not only that some uh, of these balloon efforts were undetected, but also reports that several Chinese balloons traversed at least parts of the United States during the Trump administration. Senior Trump administration officials deny that they were ever told about this. So I think there's still a lot uh, that we don't know. And I do think there are things that we need to find out about this. We, We need to determine, among other things, whether the Biden administration acted as it says it did on the basis of 
both military advice with regard to the potential collateral damage of taking the balloon down earlier than they did, but also uh, whether the uh, intelligence folks uh, actually did recommend that a lot could be gleaned from allowing this thing to go forward uh, and whether there were, in fact, measures to sort of mitigate uh, the potential intelligence gains that the PRC might glean from the track of which this balloon took. I mean, it because I spend a lot of my life worrying about nuclear weapons, it does strike me that this balloon appears to have traversed a number of our facilities where either ICBMs or B-2 bombers are, are uh, stationed. And so uh, there may have been some, you know, intelligence purpose related to strategic uh, weapons. If that's true, that's a very serious question that we need to be you know, uh, poking into. So I say that all as a kind of very long prolegomena to saying, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess I I feel duty bound to point out that uh, there could be a balloon gap emerging here. Um, this is, I believe, not the first time that uh, balloons have had this strategic purpose. You can, you'll know the history better than I do. But I believe early in the Cold War, uh, somebody at CIA got the bright idea of having balloons traverse Soviet airspace, taking lots of pictures. Now, the only problem was back then, you had no way, no way of telling where the balloon had been. So they got lots of excellent pictures of nobody knows what, because uh, they, they couldn't control it. And of course, there's a balloon history even further. I, th I have to say, I give credit to the Air Force. The call signs for the pilots who shot down the balloon were Frank 01 and Luke 01, named after Second Lieutenant Frank Luke, who received a Medal of Honor during World War I for shooting down 14 German observation balloons in three weeks. Right. So there's a, uh, there's a history here. But I, you know, on the, on the more serious note, Look, this blew up a visit by the Secretary of State right. to China. Right. Uh, the Chinese took this quite strident position, I thought, of uh, you know denouncing the fact that we had shot this thing down. Yep. So you you know you do wonder how to interpret it. I you know I suppose at the end of the day, I mean I have like you, I'm completely ignorant on this one. That won't prevent me from opining. You know, I guess my instinct is always to believe that it's stupidity and folly and, you know, one part of the bureaucracy, not knowing what the other part is doing and that sort Occam, of thing. Occam's razor would certainly suggest that the, you know, the most parsimonious explanation is through incompetence. Stupidity. Stupidity. Yeah. 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 I, but, but look, I mean, so the Chinese cover story is it's a weather observation balloon that went off course. Of course, there's another weather observation balloon that went off course over Latin America. Um, yeah. If it was a weather observation balloon that went off course and was traversing the United States, perhaps the Chinese government might have wanted to let the United States know about that yeah. and say, oops, we're sorry, you know, um, it shouldn't have happened. But they didn't do that, obviously, you know, and uh, best I can tell. The payload of this balloon was, you know, quite large instrument. You can see the pictures. It, it looks, you know, as it has been described, about three buses uh, worth of uh, apparatus attached to the bottom of this balloon that was uh, sensing, um, you know, uh, whatever it was passing over. So, you know, I think 
it would be incredibly stupid of the Chinese to have done this as a thumb in our eye if they wanted to, in fact, have uh, high-level meetings with the U.S., which they've been signaling they want to try and get the relationship a little bit less fraught than it's been. Uh, They've got a variety of reasons for wanting to do that. So if it was, in fact, an intentional act, it's incredibly stupid, and they have really, I think, underestimated the impact it will have domestically in the United States. If it was an accidental act, then it's, you know, as you say, you know, the kind of mindless workings of the bureaucracy. I think we still don't know what that answer is. Um, and I, before I reach a judgment, I'd like to see more evidence. I mean, I think the, the more serious news which struck me about China is that it turns out that there have been Chinese companies selling parts that are militarily useful to the Russian defense industry. And I think that if that's true, and if it's true on a large scale, that's a big problem. Because one of the things that really is inhibiting Russian uh, defense production is the shortage of chips, in particular, and various kinds of electronics to manufacture the hardware that they've been losing on a you know titanic scale yeah, in, in Ukraine. Stock. Yeah. And that, you know, that if that's true, then I think then things are even darker than we thought. And I, I tended to think they were pretty dark. And it's not even just the Chinese, right? It's also that uh, the Iranians are apparently going to export not just these uh, Shahid-136 drones or loitering munitions that they've been supplying the Russians with, but they're going to build them an entire factory for producing these things uh, indigenously in in Russia, which is you know the thing that worried me the most about the opening of the channel uh, from Iran to uh, Russia of lethal military assistance for these, you know, Shahid uh, 136s and Mojahir drones has been not that the Iranians would uh, supply those, but that they would, A, perhaps also supply even more uh, devastating uh, military goods, including uh, ballistic missiles, of which they have enormous numbers, um, but also that they would make available to the Russians the very highly developed sanctions evasion mechanisms that they've developed. I mean, they have a, a I mean, they're the most sanctioned country in the world, and they have developed a very very sophisticated system of trying to evade those sanctions. And if they make that available completely to the Russians, that is going to do a lot to undercut uh, Western sanctions. And and as as you know, as the Chinese potential export of military components to Russia would would be, you know, very, very bad and and raise the uh, likelihood that we'll be looking at a longer rather than a shorter conflict in Ukraine. You know, I I think that's uh, transitioning us to a discussion of Ukraine. And I have to say, I continue to be baffled by the Biden administration, which on the one hand, more or less does the right kind of thing, but late. And which does not, as the, as they say, you know, lead the targets or saying, well, six months from now, they're going to need tanks. So why don't we work on getting them there now so they can begin training up on them? And that goes out of its way to say, we're not going to do this, even if later on they, they do do this. And which is still holding back on the kind of weaponry that they really need. I mean, eventually they're finally getting, I guess, with these uh, ground launched small diameter bombs things which will have a hundred and whatever it is, 100 and 
50 kilometer reach or something like that. What, th what they really need is a TACMS, uh, which is a ballistic missile that can really, you know, do things like take out the bridge that goes to Crimea. And, and on top of all that, and this is the thing that I, I do find maddening, and this is an extremely consequential war, as you and I have, and guests of ours have discussed. We have yet to have a speech, uh, with possible exception of Lloyd Austin at Halifax, that really spells out to the American people, this is why this matters to us. You know, what's astounding is not softening public support for Ukraine. It's that the support has held up as long as it has held up without the president showing up in the Oval Office and telling the American people, this is why we should all care about it. And I know Biden is not a gifted speaker, but, you know, he can string sentences together when he has to. And I just don't understand why he doesn't and why his people don't think that he should. I, look, I couldn't agree more. I mean, I think, you know, American public support, you know, I think has been relatively robust. It's been less robust among self-identified Republicans. And that's in part for reasons we know it's, you know, got to do with statements by Trump or, or kind of Trumpist, more isolationist oriented Republicans, uh, you know, Josh Hawley and Marco Rubio and others who've made comments about this, J.D. Vance, et cetera, either comments calling for an end to the aid or insisting that, you know, there can't be a blank check, because which nobody has advocated. But it's no thanks to really the president, and he really should be doing exactly what you say. I mean, I agree with you about what you've called the titrating out of, of military assistance. I mean, the, the uh, ground-launched small-diameter bomb is a, a very useful weapon for the Ukrainians. Uh, because it'll allow them to a attack some of the interstices of Russian logistics that have moved further back, you know, in the face of the M777s and the HIMARS Gimler's rounds that we've given the Ukrainians earlier. And that's good. But as you say, ultimately, they're going to need attack them. But moreover, I tried to parse the Pentagon's fact sheet and statements about this and then read the press accounts. I'm still confused about when these things are going to actually show up in right. Ukraine. And there may be a reason why these are not coming out of U.S. stocks uh, and then being replenished later. It, but the administration hasn't explained why. But to say we're going to give them this, but it's going to show up in nine months, when everything seems to suggest that the Russians are looking at some major offensives you know, in the next three weeks... It just is inexplicable to me. I mean, am I missing something? I'm sure like you. I hope against hope this is part of some vast deception scheme that actually, you know, there are large stockpiles of these things sitting in Ukraine. And, uh, you know, the day before the Russians launch their big offensive, uh, General Solution, he gives the order and they blow up all the key command and control centers and uh, ammunition depots. But I don't think so, unfortunately. I also, I and mean, there's another dimension of this that's inexplicable. So Biden says, we're not going to give them F-16s. Well, first, you know, we often end up, you know, saying we won't do it and then we do it. But more importantly, even, even if we thought it was a bad idea, even if we didn't intend to do it, why make life easier for the Russians by saying we won't do that? I mean, I, I, it's, 
and and I mean, I am genuinely baffled by this, and it, it it's almost like there's kind of a lack of seriousness, or not a lack of seriousness. It's a lack of awareness of what happens when you're in a in a war. Yeah, that you know you you don't make it easy for the other guy. Yeah, and you don't I, reassure him in any way. So against my better instinct, let me make sort of the what would be the best case argument for the way the administrations approached this, which is that by titrating these things out, you and I are unhappy about it and other critics who want to give Ukraine everything they need, including former Ambassador Mike McFaul, who was the Obama administration's ambassador to Russia, who has a piece in foreign affairs saying, give the Ukrainians everything they need now. Don't do it incrementally. From the administration's point of view, if you're very concerned about the escalation dynamics, you don't want World War III as the president and and uh, Jake Sullivan, his national security advisor, have re repeated kind of ad nauseum, I would say, then there's something to be said for doling this out bit by bit, kind of like the, you know, sort of geopolitical equivalent of immunotherapy for allergies. If you're worried about the neuralgic Russian reaction, you you sort of do these things sort of bit by bit, you know, you say we're not going to do this, but then you do that. And you kind of habituate the Russians to the fact that the Ukrainians are going to get everything they want over time. But you avoid the big kind of explosive reaction from Moscow. And look, to some extent, that has worked, I think. I mean, uh, the Russians have become inured. Uh, now, what what I think speaks against that. Again, I'm trying to make the best face argument. I'm not endorsing this by any means. Yeah. But what stands against that, you know, I think is there's nothing they can do about this anyway. Right. Uh, that That's exactly the point. What, what are they going to do? Try to blow up Ukrainian power plants? You know, they're doing that anyway. Right. Uh, there's also, there are two other, there are two other counter arguments I, I would make. You know, what one is there is a profound human cost to this. You know, a long war means tens of thousands of Ukrainian civilians and soldiers who are going to be killed and maimed. And, you know, you know, if you plan on helping those people, but you decide to be clever and titrate it, some of that blood is on your hands. You know, if you if you are deliberately slow rolling it. Secondly, you reinforce the worst instincts of the Olaf Schultzes of this world. Uh, so, well, if the Americans don't want to lean in, why exactly should we? Now, you know, the good news there is that you've got the Poles and the Czechs and the Finns and the Estonians uh, and others who are, who are leaning forward. But I think with a lot of the big countries, they can hide behind us. Now, the one thing I, I would say just about that, it's, it's been interesting watching the French you know, the French have actually begun amping up their military aid to Ukraine. And Macron, this may have just have been, you know, him being uh, exercising a, you know, a certain amount of Gallic uh, needling of us, said, well, you know, maybe fighter jets should be on the, uh, on the menu. I would say that's constructive needling. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and good for him. Yeah. The, the thing that I'm, I'm, I'm really interested in here, which I'd like to hear your view. So... Have you seen this word intermarium? So between the seas, the idea that there's a distinct region from the Baltics through Eastern Europe, obviously down to the Black Sea, 
as a kind of a distinct strategic region mm-hmm. in uh, in Europe. And the argument, and of course, it's it would be the Poles who would make it, but that doesn't mean that it's wrong. That you know, this is going to be the kind of center of initiative and leadership within NATO, supported by the United States and Great Britain. And I increasingly tend to think there's something to that. I mean, the, you know, the Poles are really planning on some monumental purchases of weaponry. I think I saw, I believe I saw that in addition to the M1 Abrams tanks they're buying, they, they've got, they're going to buy a couple of hundred uh, South Korean K2 tanks, which is qu- actually quite a good tank. And then they're going to build a factory or factories to manufacture 700 more. And, you know, that makes them quite a considerable power and actually a much more considerable power, military power than uh, Germany is. Before I respond to that, Elliot, I want to stick with what we were just talking about and advance two more arguments against the idea of immunotherapy or acclimating the Russians to progressively more and more types of armed assistance going to Ukraine. The more this looks like a long war, the more it will excite the kinds of things we saw that just came out in the RAND study, that the way to avoid a long war is to force the Ukrainians uh, to negotiate with the Russians and to make a deal on what would be very unfavorable terms. That, in my view, would be catastrophic for the administration's announced goal of denying the Russians you know, a strategic victory. In, in other words, denying them the fruits of their, you know, unprovoked premeditated aggression against uh, another independent state with whom they had legally binding arrangements not, you know, not to do this. So that's, you know, point one. Point two is, uh, and this is something that I, I think came up with uh, our colleague Peter Fever when we had him on the podcast uh, some months back, but if it didn't, it should have, because of course it's based on a lot of work he has done, which is that support for this kind of thing is is very dependent on the prospect of victory. The last thing Americans want is another you know, endless war. I mean, I, I hate that locution, as you know, because I think it's mindless and stupid, but it is a reality that if if there doesn't seem to be a prospect for victory, support uh, for this will wane. So just on the administration's own terms, it seems to me to be very foolish to not be plunging ahead, giving you know the Ukrainians everything they need, particularly to thwart the next uh, series of offensives. And we can talk about the offensives and what's likely to happen. I, I, I'm both worried about that, although I think there's some very serious obstacles the Russians are still still facing. But on the question of the intermarium and the, you know, I I don't, I mean, I understand what people are saying and maybe it will eventuate that way, but I don't think it's that way yet. And I say that because Turkey's uh, position is very ambivalent. So is Bulgaria's. Bulgaria, while it's a NATO member, there's still very extensive Russian influence in Bulgaria. It's a half-hearted, ambivalent, you know, member at, at all. Romania better than Bulgaria, but also, you know, a little bit shaky, uh, even though it's a Black Sea riparian state. You know, then there's, of course, not to mention Hungary, which is, you know, an outlier. Having said that, I do think that the 
addition of Finland and Sweden to NATO will create a kind of shift inside NATO to the east because Finland and Sweden are both very serious. They've got serious military capability to bring to bear in the alliance. Uh, they think seriously about these problems. I mean, the Finnish and Swedish international insti um, institutes or institutes of international relations, I should say, are, have studied the Soviet military very carefully. They're very smart about this. They bring serious defense industries to bear in a period of time when the U.S. and Europe both are going to have to rediscover their vocation as the arsenal of democracy to withstand both uh, potentially Russian and uh, Chinese uh, aggression. And along with Poland, as you were describing, um, and the Baltic states, which have per capita donated probably more than anybody yeah. to the defense of the Ukrainians, I do think you will see them emerging as uh, more and more leaders inside the alliance and relatively speaking, very pro-American yeah. voices in, inside the alliance. Well, this is, you know, your old boss, uh, Don Rumsfeld, talking about old Europe and New York. He wasn't, he was not entirely wrong about that. But speaking of all that, uh, maybe we could use that to shift to Turkey. So I suppose uh, knowing much, infinitely less about Turkey than you do, my default expectation is, or interpretation, I should say, is that Erdogan is, uh, you know, he's taken the Finns and the Swedes and every other member of NATO into the bazaar. Uh, he is a master bargainer. He's going to extract the absolute maximum, particularly from the Swedes. I don't think he cares about the Finns. And at the last minute, he will accede to their joining NATO. What do you think? Certainly hope so. There are already some signs emerging. He has spoken about, and it's been brooded about in Finland as well, that there may be a, a Turkish parliamentary approval soon of Finland. I think this is driven in part by concerns um, about the potential F-16 sale from the United States to Turkey. And then perhaps at some later point, probably after the May 14th Turkish election, that uh, and after extracting some more uh, you know, putative concessions from uh, the Swedes that the Swedes will be, you know, allowed to come in and all of this will take place before the Vilnius summit. So by the time of the summit, we'll have one big happy, you know, NATO family. That's at least the hope. There are a lot of things that could go wrong here. I mean, uh, Erdogan is, you know, quite mercurial. You know, this Quran burning incident, which, oh, by the way, has all the earmarks of a Russian, it's a Russian provocation. Yeah. It's a Russian disinformation operation. And yeah. I know that at least some senior Turks know that and are not, you know, under any illusions about that. But Erdogan has either chosen to play on that or, or himself is, you know, somehow blind to that. Things like that can happen and, and this all can go wrong. Moreover, you know, this is be careful what you wish for, because you might get it. There's no guarantee if he loses the election that the opposition is going to be a whole lot better. In fact, they might be a lot weaker in sort of being able to, you know, deal with uh, whipped up nationalist sentiment that he's created. So, uh, you know, there's no guarantees in life. The, uh, the, the earthquake in Turkey, you know, one can hope that 
uh, it will do some things to ameliorate uh, the regional situation. So, I mean, in 1999, the very large, there was a very large earthquake in Istanbul, in the Istanbul area, Istanbul and Bursa, but also in Greece. And that led to a bit of a rapprochement between Turkey and Greece and ultimately actually opened the door, ironically, to the Finns being able to get Turkey's EU candidacy back on the agenda of the EU. I happen to have been U.S. ambassador to Finland at that time when the Finns held the EU presidency for six months, the rotating presidency. And, you know, that's all been forgotten by the Turks, of course, now in their current uh, phase. But, you know, the Finns were a driving force in, in getting their EU candidacy back on. So it may be because of the enormous humanitarian suffering that's gone. This is a very serious earthquake, as best I can tell. And there's a prospect. It seems like the uh, the fault lines, there's a lot of stress still in those faults. And there's been some kind of crack, I'm told, that could lead to even, you know, um, uh, at least another. There was already two earthquakes, but it's not just another aftershock, but perhaps another quake. The destruction's already been immense. So one could hope that, you know, that will once again lead to maybe some lessening of regional tensions, maybe less threatening by Turkey of, you know, warfare against Greece, because I think the, the Greeks are reaching out and offering, um, you know, humanitarian assistance to deal with the terrible consequences of the earthquake. And really, you read the, you read the stories and watch these pictures, and given the the weather patterns and the cold and the the temperature and the snow. I mean, I you know, you really feel for the people who've been affected by this. Um, but by the same token, you know, the day before the earthquake, the interior minister of Turkey, Recep Soylu, said that about our ambassador, my successor multiple times removed, Ambassador Jeff Flake, get your dirty hands off of Turkey. Keep your dirty hands off of Turkey, he said. I mean, it seems like a very ill-advised comment, you know, in light of what happened 24 hours later, because obviously we're offering as you know a lot of assistance as well, humanitarian assistance to deal with this uh, this terrible human tragedy. So, you know, I don't know how it's going to play domestically. I I fear a little bit that it's going to redound to Erdogan's benefit because he's going to be kind of in charge. You know, if if he has a reasonably competent response to this, this will help him enormously incumbency will help him enormously in the May 14th election. I'm trying to be dispassionate about it. I, I have to say, whatever my personal feelings about uh, Type Erdogan are, he does seem to me to be a very cunning pragmatist who has played, from the point of view of Turkish interests as he understands them, a very successful game with us and with the Russians and the Ukrainians and, you know, everybody else. And it's, uh, I mean, there are parts of it which are infuriating, but, you know, uh, it's, and, and, and I guess the larger thing that I wonder about is maybe this, you know, is an indication of the world that we're heading into where you have authoritarian, a lot of authoritarian rulers who have multiple motivations to be sure, but in some ways they're pursuing national interests as they understand it, and they do it in frequently in unsavory ways, they're going to be extremely transactional. And they may well be successful because the nature of the, 
international system in which we're operating now is that there's just much more fluidity. There are, you know, more states that are at odds with us, at odds with the West. You'll have marriages of convenience and so forth. And so I think this is uh, this is our future. You know, I, I remember very early on, Eric, when you and I talked about um, there's almost there's 20, literally 20 years ago. About. You know, would the Turks allow the Fourth uh, Infantry Division to come through Turkey? Well, you know, the idea is that the Turks, of course, are our allies. And yes, they've got a domestic problem to be sure with allowing this. And, you know, shouldn't Colin Powell have gone to pay a visit? But but bas- the basic assumption that these are our allies difficult allies. But now I have to say, I don't particularly think of the Turks as allies. I mean, I think they're a power that we deal with and that will sometimes align with us and sometimes not. I think that's clearly right. I mean, Erdogan has been very successful, you know, if your role model is Rod Blagojevich. I mean, his, his you know, interpretation of Turkish national interests is extremely coincident with his own personal political interest, uh, which is what really drives everything for for Erdogan. And while he's been, you know, successful at some level, certainly nobody's made money betting against him in Turkish politics over the last 20 years, right? He's won every election that he's been in, although there have been a couple of close calls, particularly back in June of 2015. But there's a cost here, I think. You know, I, I think in particular, the veto of Finland and Sweden, which came after he had assured leaders in both countries that he had no objection, I think has actually exacted a bit of a price inside NATO. I think there's real anger and fury at the Turks for the way that they've playing this. they're playing this. Now, people are not vocalizing it so much, I think, because uh, since NATO operates on consensus and the Turks can block all this, I think you know they've they've been able to shield themselves a little bit from some of the anger that I, I've detected when talking to other you know diplomats about this. I'm not sure that that will last forever. I mean, I think after the Hungarians get around this month, I hope to approving this, and it's only the Turks who are holding out. I think there's going to be more of that, and if he ends up blocking even if he ends up acceding to Finland, but blocking Sweden for a long time. And at, certainly after the Vilnius summit, I think there'll be quite a lot of anger. And, you know, there's no mechanism to do what John Bolton suggested in an op-ed uh, not long ago, kicking Turkey out of NATO. But I think you'll hear more people talking about that. More people will be starting to speculate about that. I mean, and as you say, they're, they're a highly situational and transactional ally. You know, they're, they're, they're content to be an ally and a member of NATO when it suits their purpose, but to pretend that they have no obligations to the United States or any other ally when it doesn't. And you can see that, for instance, in their, um, you know, uh, really kind of not very thorough application. They, they, they've refused to in, in enforce sanctions themselves. And, uh, you know, they've had to be badgered, you know, constantly by the Department of Treasury and particularly the Deputy Treasury Sec- Secretary Wally Adeyemo, who's been out there in Turkey and been on the phone constantly with his counterparts, trying to get the Turks to, to you know, live up to their obligations to sanction certain activities. And, uh, I mean, they've done some things, like they've unplugged the, you know, their payment system from the mere payment system, 
that was being used. But there's also, you know, there's $28 billion worth of, you know, quote, errors and omissions on their IMF balance sheet, uh, which, you know, almost everybody believes is, you know, Russian oligarch and other money flooding into Turkey. Suits Erdogan's purposes right now because it's floating the Turkish economy in the run-up to the election, which is suffering from, you know, 85% inflation, which is due to his economic mismanagement of the place. You know, Eric, I think one of the things that I, I wonder about is if the Turkish case is not an isolated case, you know, I think about Hungary. If NATO, which was something very different when, you know, 30 or 40 years ago from what it is now, much larger, much more diverse views. If you're seeing a number of people who he sort of thought of as allies or partners, but are really intensely transactional, what does this mean for the style of American foreign policy going forward? And I guess I would posit two things. One is that it would behoove us to look uh, to create smaller, closer groupings of really like-minded countries. In a way, I think that's part of what AUKUS is about and AUKUS plus Japan, so JOKUS. Um, I think that is something that we'll probably be seeing more of in Europe. And it's not that we'll just try to dismantle Europe, uh, try to dismantle NATO rather. But, but, you know, the actual international action is going to happen in smaller groupings of countries that really can think of one another as allies and as partners. And I think conversely, it means that we actually need to cultivate a somewhat harder transactional edge in dealing with the Hungaries and Turkeys of this world. So, you know, I'm quite pleased that Congress is saying, you know, no admission uh, to NATO for Sweden and Finland, no F-16s. But, but I think there's probably a lot more that we can do than that. And, you know, particularly towards the Hungarians, who in some ways have been quite despicable. You know, I have no problem with really twisting their arms. And I think we're going to have to get used to doing that. And it's that's not been the style of American foreign policy. And it shouldn't be the general style, you know, vis-a-vis -vis countries that really are close to us. But vis-a-vis -vis these other countries... You know, I think that's the direction we should probably move in. What do you what do you say to that? Two things. One, I, I very much agree that and I've thought for some time that we need more kind of multilateral approaches in East Asia, where we have traditionally had these you know bilateral hub and spoke relationships. And as you say, AUKUS and, and bringing the, the quad and you know, Japan, if we could ever get Japan, South Korea and the U.S. all aligned, we never seem to be able to be able to do that because the internal politics of South Korea and Japan are never in phase with one another. Uh, but we, we need to, I think, do that in East Asia. And then we, we need more what I guess I would call mini-lateralism inside NATO, which is, it's not exactly a coalition of the willing, but working with, you know, the Poles and the Finns and Swedes once they're in and the Balts and others to advance sort of common interests. I think that is, you know, very much the wave of the future. And we definitely need to be more transactional with the Hungarians and the Turks and other problematic uh, allies. And you're right, that's very much goes against the grain of uh, the career uh, American Foreign Service. It's you know, it's really what you and I have discussed in the past, what the French call la déformation professionnelle. You know, the American Foreign Service, you get promoted, you get ahead in, in the profession by smoothing the rub, rough edges off you know, relationships, not 
actually highlighting them. And so that's very countercultural. But I think we have to do it. Look, to give you some sense of how hard this is, uh, Jake Sullivan and I, back in 2018, wrote an op-ed together for Politico about how the United States needed to get more transactional with Erdogan uh, and with the Turks. And, you know, Jake's now national security advisor. And I think the Biden administration has had a lot of difficulty actually applying this. It's, it's, it's very hard, actually, particularly when you got a country like, probably easier with Hungary, but with, with a country like Turkey, where you've got so many interests in it, you know, it's, 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 uh, it's harder to actually ap apply this. We are, by the way, on Turkey going to have uh, the redoubtable Henri Barki, who has an article out in Foreign Affairs about the impact of the Turkish election coming on the show uh, very soon. So we should have him on in about uh, about two weeks time. So uh, hold these thoughts because uh, we, we need to go. <laughs> we need to go into them with uh, Henri. Well, I, I would just add one last thing, though, on that, you know, you made a, a point about the career of foreign service, but I, I think it's it goes beyond that. And maybe one way of putting it is that I think for a lot of people, certainly in the foreign service, but but in the foreign, you know, th that that part of the, uh, you know, think tank, intellectual, you know, policy community, people think more about foreign relations than they do about foreign policy. And there's a there's a real distinction there. Yep. Uh, you can have very good foreign policy that doesn't necessarily mean that you have great foreign relations, at least in some areas. And uh, and like I said, I, you know, I wouldn't apply this um, universally. I mean, I don't think the United States is not going to have a Metternichian kind of policy where we just, you know, think of everybody else's chess pieces to try to move around the board. Uh, but we are going to have to have that approach to to a number of countries and not, you know, not let ourselves get trapped in saying, well, we can't damage the relationship. Agree, totally. It runs against the American grain, actually, to do this, I think. It, yeah. It's a little bit out of our national yeah. character. Uh, it's one reason why I think Henry always had a lot of trouble imposing, you know, a, a real politique foreign policy on the United States. It just doesn't sit well with with Americans who, you know, want to assume the best about people for the most part and have trouble, I think, kind of particularly when they're dealing with countries that are nominally allies, sort of, you know, exacting these kinds of... Well, and, and, and to be, and to be to, I mean, I think, the, you know, it's complicated because there are those countries with which maintaining the relationship is critical. You know, I, I watched you almost single-handedly rebuild the relationship with France. That is a relationship, even when the French are difficult and we irritate them and they really irritate us. They're not like Hungary. Oh, of course. You know, they're not, they're not like Turkey. Yeah. I do want to, before we wrap, because we're running out of time, I do want to get back to the question of Iran for a moment. And that is because yeah. it bothers me enormously that you know, even though we're in like day 140 something of the protests in Iran, and, and although there have been, you know, upwards of perhaps 30,000 people detained, and maybe as many as a 1000 killed, although I think the numbers might be a little below that. You know, it's like falling off the face of the earth for Americans, you could barely find any news about about this. And it is hugely important, particularly at a time when Iran is as you know, we were talking about earlier is uh, becoming a main military supplier for Russia um, and is, is you know, violating, continuing to violate and moving kind of 
into higher violations of the limits that were set in the JCPOA, the nuclear agreement that was reached in 2015. And yet, you know, it, it seems like the Biden administration is saying, on the one hand, the JCPOA is dead, but we kind of don't really have I mean, a, a real alternative policy, although they seem to be struggling to find one. So we have had Juniper Oak, this really huge U.S.-Israeli military exercise, which I think is a step in the right direction. But the administration seems to be balking at uh, what what Ray Takei and I advocated in the pages of Foreign Affairs recently. Uh, we were asked to do a update of our article from 2020 when we advocated that the United States ought to do everything it can to support regime change in Iran. Not, <clears throat> by the way, imposed by U.S. military force, but helping the Iranian people do what they clearly want to do themselves. Yeah. Part of the, of course, part of the incoherence on our side is it, the administration is divided against itself. You've got Robert Malley as you know the the chief guy on Iran policy, uh, who is clearly deeply committed to the JCPOA. He had helped negotiate it. It's also clear the president's quite skeptical of it. So, like, what gives? Um, you know, there's there's that. I I think the uh, I, I also think that there's a certain amount of fatalism, and this is a broader issue. And I wonder if this has infected our elites and Western elites more broadly, which is, you know, people just being resigned to the idea that modern authoritarian regimes have such good mechanisms of control and repression that they really can't be overthrown by popular upheaval. Now, that's actually a serious argument. And maybe we should try to get there are people who've written about this, and maybe we should try to bring them on the podcast. Uh, but but that's for me is one of the most concerning things, you know. They, that it's a brutal regime, of course, that they'll use violence, of course. But even violent regimes have been taken down by really large crowds in the street, and you just somehow get a sense that because people like the Chinese uh, kind of share the the techne of repression. Uh, in terms of skill, concepts, hardware, training. Software. You know, uh, software. It's uh, facial recognition technology, all that stuff. Right. It, it's just really hard to have the kind of upheaval in the streets that has historically been one way that, you know, rotten, corrupt uh, dictatorships are taken down. Including in Iran, which has had a history of popular, yes, of course. Yeah. popular uh, uh, rebellion against against rulers, corrupt and hated rulers. Uh, look, I, you know, it's an open question and I don't think we know the answer yet, but uh, hopefully we can get some folks on who are smart about this and help enlighten us. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, as usual, uh, we have very little cheerful to say, uh, <laughs> but I, I, I will take up the challenge that I think you advanced in our uh, interview with Phil Taubman. Uh, you know, John McLaughlin and I can come on together and we can talk about magic and what it has to do with intelligence and foreign policy and strategy. I think that would be wonderful. I think that would be magical. It, indeed, it would. Well, with that, I, we didn't really get to the question of Russian potential uh, military operations and uh, new offensives in, in Ukraine, but uh, we can hold that for another day because yes. I, think, uh, I think it's coming and we can talk about yeah. the prospects for success and uh, 
timing and, and where this might happen on a, on a subsequent podcast. But uh, as always, uh, you've left me smarter than I was at the beginning of this. Well, same, same here, my friend. <laughs>